Wonderful to see you guys this morning. My name's Tony. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here as a pastor. Uh, if you are a uh, new or visiting, checking us out, we're super excited to have you. Uh, if you're in elementary school, uh, I want you to gather over by Daniel. He's going to lead you over uh, to hang out with uh, the kiddos, and they're excited to have you. They got a fun day planned. If you're uh, in middle school or high school, uh, Kyle and Kelly are over there. Our middle schoolers and high schoolers are going to go hang out in the building right behind us. Uh, we're beginning a new and really exciting uh, youth ministry here. So come on, it'll be fun. Enjoy. So one of my favorite things, one of the great privileges I have being here is getting to see God do work in the lives of individuals in this body. And one of the coolest stories over the last year has been watching uh, Amy, actually, in her worship leading. Isn't it just a blessing to be able to... I love, I love what God has done over this last year. It's so cool, in fact, we made a video about it. And I'm not kidding. Boom. So I'm Amy Eldridge, and been here a year since we're coming up on a year. Uh, it's a silly story, really, how I came to be here. Um, my husband and I have been at a church for a, a bigger church in the area for almost 20 years. And I just think it's awesome that the call kind of came through that church, through one of the pastors, uh, to see if we could just help out with music. So that's how I came to be here, and it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that uh, it was God's plan for us to be a part of this church. We, like I said, we've been at that other church for so long and had gone through so many different seasons. Um, I rededicated my life to the Lord through that church, and... Um, just my, my journey with the Lord had deepened so much through those years. Um, it definitely wasn't something I was ready to uproot and, and change necessarily. However, I was at a wall and I was just stuck. And I had been for quite a while. Um, just to the point, and I'm sure most people can relate to this at some point in their journey where they're just like, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do anymore. I, I don't even want to pray anymore. God, I know you're there, but... I'm just kind of going through the motions, you know, and meeting Tony and the, the community here, um, even smaller as it was, it was just such a genuine, like God just knew that I needed to be in a smaller community of people um, to have deeper relationships and it just changed everything. I wish that I had a video of when I had first been helping lead worship here to where I am now because it was again just that kind of route this is what I do um, but as I came alive again spiritually um, and <laughs> allowed God to peel back some of that those dead layers I guess is the way to describe it um, it's so not that way anymore to have that fire reignited and to get in touch with my calling from when I was 16 years old, um, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool to see how God has worked in Amy's life. And one of the sort of, I don't know, funnest parts about that story is she ended up here one Sunday because a bee flew into my friend's mouth. 
So, real story. So, uh, it was the weekend we were coming down here. It was about 18 months ago. We were coming to discern whether God was leading us here. We were coming to lead a Sunday morning. I invited my friend from San Jose down to lead worship. He was mountain biking. A bee flew into his mouth. He flipped off his bike, ended up getting a concussion, ended up in the ER, and called me from the ER saying, hey, there's no way I can lead on Sunday. I have sort of an anxiety attack at that moment. And uh, an hour later, Amy gives me a call, totally unaware of what just happened to my friend, saying, hey, we're wondering if you need help with worship. And they've been here ever since. So if you came here because of a bee, you're in the right place. Uh, if it was another insect, insect, I'm sure that counts too. Uh, but anyway, we're, so this morning we're journeying through the book of John. We've made it through chapter 5. We actually, this is our third week in chapter 5. Chapter 5 uh, begins with Jesus healing a man at a pool. Now this guy has, uh, can't walk. Jesus heals him. He tells him to pick up his mat. And because of that, he violates a Sabbath principle. So what happens at this point is people start getting mad at him. And what we see in John time and time again is Jesus does something and it leads to this long chapter-long dialogue between Jesus and some Judean adversaries. So that's what we're going to pick up today. Now, one of the things you're going to notice in today's conversation that Jesus has with some of these guys is it sort of mirrors a courtroom scene where Jesus calls forth testimonies and sort of issues of verdict. Now, as a child who grew up, my dad was a lawyer. I spent a little bit of time in legal proceedings when I was a, a kid. I'd go to the, you know, the, I'd, I'd go into the courtroom and have you ever been in a courtroom, uh, maybe just not for jury duty, but like actually attended or sat in? It's like kind of austere, especially if you're a little kid, you're just like, dang, you know, that bailiff like puts people in and out of jail. It's like, you're terrified of him. And, you know, the judge has that like gavel and just kind of this big intense setting. And what my dad would do is he'd call, you know, witnesses up. You've all seen it on some TV show, I'm sure, you know, calls the witnesses up and then he speaks to the witness, but the witness is talking to the jury, right? He's trying to get the jury to understand the basic testimonies going on and then make a verdict. And what we're going to see in the text today is Jesus calls forth five different witnesses to testify in front of his Judean adversaries. He says, brings himself up to the stand. He brings the father up. He uh, actually puts John the Baptist up there. Uh, we have the scriptures as a whole and then Moses particularly. This is how it goes. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mentioned it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, but you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. 
But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes only from God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So hopefully you see sort of this repetition of testify. Did you hear that? Like multiple times in this text. Now, one of the things uh, that's sort of interesting, maybe if you're like, this is sort of weird, like a courtroom metaphor scene, like how does that fit? Well, actually, it's kind of interesting. If you go to the book of Isaiah and the prophets, God often creates these courtroom scenes in order to put a case before the people. And that's what we see here. Right In verse 31, Jesus introduces himself as the first witness. Now, if I call myself to the stand, it doesn't hold as much traction, right, as if I invite Fran or John or someone else to testify on my behalf. So quickly, kind of, Jesus dismisses this, and then he goes to the Father in verse 32. He says, There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Right? And this one right, is the Father. This is God. And then in verse 37, he continues. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Right? So you have this repetition of testify. You have Jesus testifying. You have the Father testifying. And the people are not really taking, them, uh, taking those testimonies seriously. Then he jumps in verse 33 to John the Baptist. And this is where it gets really interesting. So he says in verse 33, You have sent to John... And he testified to the truth. Verse 35. John was a lamp that burned and gave light. You chose for a time to enjoy his light. Now, verse 33 is really interesting because it requires us to go back to chapter 1. So in chapter 1, right after the prologue, John is out baptizing people at the River Jordan. Right? So he, people are coming, wanting to be baptized, and this is basically saying they want to sort of recommit, uh, cleanse themselves for the coming king who's going to be coming to Israel. Right? So they're preparing themselves. And what do the Jews in Jerusalem do? They send out people to sort of examine what John is doing. Right? They actually send out people to check and validate that what John is doing is good. It's pretty interesting. So they've actually done this before. And what do they see? They see Jesus approach John at the River Jordan, and John says this about Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? So you have these Jews from Jerusalem coming out to see what John is doing. John points to Jesus and says, yep, he's the one. And then in verses 32 and 34, it says that John gives testimony in chapter 1. And there's a particular tense that this verb is used. So we don't have it in English. It's called the perfect tense in Greek. And what it means is John says he testifies to these things in chapter 1. And what the perfect tense does is it says that his testimony that is given in the past is relevant in the present. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, you had this guy validated as a witness. You brought people out. He gave a testimony and that testimony still stands, right? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, despite this, right, they don't believe John's testimony. Now, what's interesting about this text at this point is now it starts to shift. At first, it felt like Jesus was on trial for breaking this Sabbath law, right? 
he asked this guy to pick up his mat at the beginning of chapter 5, violation of Jeremiah 21, which was, hey, don't carry something on the Sabbath. But now it's shifted. Now it's not simply about what Jesus did, but who he is. Right? Who are you, Jesus? Right? He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God's chosen one, appointed to bring in and usher in God's kingdom, to rescue Israel. And the question is, do they believe that? And what Jesus does at this point is he brings up a fourth witness, right? He brings up the scriptures themselves. Now, in the first century, if you're a Jewish person, you're looking to the scriptures, the text, the Tanakh, the Torah, the First Testament, the Hebrew Bible. You're looking at it to see what is the will of God? What is God up to? What is his Messiah going to do? What is his kingdom like? Now, Jesus isn't the only one doing this. Hillel, who's a rabbi, is a contemporary of Jesus. He says this, If a man has gained for himself the words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So if you look at the scriptures, you're going to find life. Rabbi Akiba, who's a second century, really, really famous rabbi, he says this, God said, the word is not idle, an idle thing for you. For if it is idle for you, why is it so? Because you do not know how to search it. For you do not energetically occupy yourself with it, for it is your life. When is it your life? When you exert yourself with it. See, there's this basic assumption in first century Israel that if you want to discern the kingdom, who God is, what he's about, what do you do? You turn to the scriptures. So when Jesus says in verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Right? When he says this, they get it. They're all looking for the scriptures in the scriptures to figure out who is God. All of the rabbis are doing this. Where they disagreed was on the point of interpretation. What do these scriptures point to? And Jesus is saying, hey, the scriptures point to me. You're reading it wrongly. Beasley Murray is a theologian, and he writes in his commentary on John, he says, the scriptures were given by God to witness to the Christ that his people might come to him and through him gain the life of which they give promise. Right? The scriptures are about me, Jesus is saying. He's like, I testify on my behalf. The Father testifies on my behalf. John testifies on my behalf. The scriptures point to me. What more do you need? So then he brings up a fifth witness, Moses. He says this, verses 45 through 47. But do you not think, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now, what's interesting is in the first century, there's this uh, assumption, right, that sort of goes back to, I think it's Exodus 32. So Moses in Exodus 32 goes up to talk to God on Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, the people of Israel make this golden calf and start worshiping it, right? Moses comes down and then he intercedes on behalf 
of the gathered community, the Israelites, as they're at the bottom of the mountain. He's like, oh, God, they forgive them, have mercy on them, right? They shouldn't be worshiping this golden calf. And in the first century, when Jesus says in verse 45, he says, Moses, on whom your hopes are set, it's because in the first century, there's this assumption that Moses is going to intercede for them at the last judgment. So just as Moses interceded at the bottom of Mount Sinai, at the end of times, Moses is going to intercede for the people of Israel. He's going to say, God, yeah, I know they've messed up a little bit, but trust me, I'm Moses. You know, they're good. And this is why Jesus says, hey, you shouldn't be uh, looking to Moses for your hope. On the contrary, Jesus is like, Moses is going to accuse you, not defend you, because Moses was pointing to me. Now, what's clear by the end of this text is that while it feels like it began with Jesus and the gathered community, his Judean opponents, they're kind of like, it sort of feels like they're the jury and he's on trial, right? It's like, well, I got to convince these guys. But by the end of the text, it's more like Jesus is actually the prosecutor and the judge. And he's saying to them, hey, I've brought forth all of these witnesses. What are you going to do about it? And then weaved throughout these witnesses and their accounts is actually his judgment of them. Did you notice that? Right, verses 37 and 38. You have, heard his, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Jesus is like, dude, you're not listening. The scriptures that you looking, are looking for eternal life in, you're not reading them. They're not sinking in. You're not believing me, right? The one who is anointed by God to come. Verse 40, right? You refuse to come to me to have life. It's like, I'm here. I'm the word of God made flesh to bring light and life to the world. Remember, that's the prologue. That's the beginning of John. Jesus, the word of God has created all things and through him, he comes to rescue humanity. And Jesus is like, I am the life and light of the world. Yet you don't even come to me. Verse 42, he says this, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Jesus is the word made flesh, right? He is the hope of the world. He takes on human flesh. He enters the world. What does John say? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And we're seeing that play out here in chapter five, right? Jesus is coming to bring light and life. He's saying, hey, all of these things point towards me, but you are rejecting it. You are rejecting me, God coming to you to bring you life, to bring light into your present darkness. Now, some of you are sitting there, you're like, that's great in theory, but how does that at all translate into modern life? You're like, okay, courtroom, first century, I'm imagining some sort of desert uh, trial experience. You know, how does that translate to us today? I think the first thing I would say is, who do you think Jesus is? Like one of the key questions of this text is Jesus saying, this is who I am. And they're like, nah, I don't know, you know. I think in the world we live in, Jesus is understood in lots of ways. Some people see him as a wise teacher, right? Someone who's, ah, we should listen to what he has to say, right? 
There's a lot of people that are value what he has to say. We should base our actions on what he teaches. He says, don't do these things. Oh, we should not do those things, right? That's one way. Some people see him just as a rabbi, right? Now, a rabbi is not simply a teacher. A rabbi is someone you follow and try and sort of actually base your life and action on. You try and become like that rabbi, not simply know what a teacher knows. In the text, we also see that Jesus is king, right? Last week, we talked about Daniel 7 and the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is king. When you come in this morning, you know, is, is Jesus a wise teacher, a rabbi? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? The thing about having him be your king is you live in his kingdom, right? And he kind of sets the rules for life and we try and work within it. Even more, you know, is, is he God? Is he the only son of the Father who created all things through whom is the salvation and rescue of the world? When you come in today, who is Jesus to you? Because what we know in the text, right, in the scriptures themselves, another testimony to us this morning, Jesus is the creator of the universe along with the Father, right? He is the, the word made flesh through whom all things come into being. We also know that he is the light and life of the world. He is God who takes on human flesh to enter into the brokenness of our world to rescue us. One of the things, though, that's interesting about sort of just testimony is that in modern life, like personal conviction is usually a private affair. So when I say to you, who is Jesus? You think, huh, who is he to me? You know, and you marinate it on in your head and then you sort of carry it within you. But one of the things we see actually is kind of a distinction between our first century or our 21st century very individualistic experience of faith and a first century more communal perspective is from the beginning, this courtroom scene is taking out in public. Jesus isn't meeting one-on-one with each person in a coffee shop, right? This is a public experience of, okay, who do you guys say that I am? Two, when we see John the Baptist baptizing people, he doesn't like close a door or find each individual and they have a personal private experience. This is happening in a, in a river, the Jordan River, and people are coming making a public declaration of faith. Now, maybe the only way this really translates in modern life is weddings. <clears throat> in a wedding, most people still gather a bunch of people and have a ceremony. And we do this for a few reasons. One, the party is much better after if you have a bunch of people with you. But two, because marriage is hard to live out. So what you do is you actually have vows with another person in the presence of witnesses and God so that when you make these promises to your spouse, the community around you helps, the, helps you to live them out. So when I ask you, who is Jesus to you? I'm not asking you for sort of a a personal existential sort of experience internally. I'm asking, hey, is Jesus your king? And if he is, there is a public and public declaration connected to that. That is why baptism from the earliest experiences of the church was a public experience. That's why I wonder, you know, if maybe some of you haven't been baptized Maybe you've never been baptized. You've never said, you know what? I want Jesus 
to be my God and my king. And I'm going to declare that in front of the community so they can help me live that out. If you're interested in being baptized, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to be meeting with people over the next month or so uh, to figure out how do, how do we want to do that? How do each of you sort of want to have that experience of baptism, either up here on a Sunday, a smaller community, but I have a sign-up sheet out there, and I'd like you to consider, if you haven't been baptized, being baptized as a way of publicly declaring your personal commitment to Jesus. Now, I also want to say, though, that in modern times, sometimes what happens is we're baptized, and then we might spend a year, a decade, half a century kind of doing our own thing. And then at some point we come back to church. And I think at that point, if that's you, you know, if you were sort of wandering for a while and you came back to Wellspring and now you're like, oh, I kind of want to follow Jesus. I want him to be my God and King. We want to create a space where people can do recommitments to Jesus. Again, as a public way of saying, all right, I'm in Jesus. So if that makes sense to you. If you feel like you've been wandering a bit and you're like, no, I need to like, I need to say in front of some people, no, I'm in. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to be my God and my king. And we're going to have signups in there. I will meet with you individually and we'll figure out sort of a best way forward. Uh, But I think that is one way to apply this text today. Who is Jesus? How do you respond to it? The second thing is just a question as well. It's this. So what is your relationship with him actually like then? Maybe you show up today and you're like, dude, I'm committed, you know? I don't need to get baptized. Like, check, check. Okay, great. My guess is most of the people gathered around Jesus that day would have said, we're committed to. So when we actually look at this text and how it speaks into our life, Jesus says some pretty interesting things to these people, uh, his Judean adversaries that are pretty committed to God, right? He says to this, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. I think we should sort of consider that. It should make us a little uncomfortable because uh, these people are really trying to follow God. So I guess maybe from that, I would ask a few very specific questions to you, like, are you listening to his voice? Right, he says to them, you've never heard his voice. Are we listening to God's voice? Maybe just really practically, when was literally the last time you heard God speak to you? If it's been a few months, years, you might want to like write a little note about that, like, huh, maybe a little light bulb should go off of like, ah, maybe something's a little off right now. Are we listening to his voice? Second, are you dwelling in his word? Right, he says to the, his Judean adversaries, nor does his word dwell in you. When was the last time God's word actually sank deep in you and in your life? And I don't mean like, oh, I read the Bible yesterday. Right, dwell has a sense of when did God's word last make its home in you? It like it landed, it didn't just knock on the door and walk away. It like landed, went inside, grabbed a cup of coffee and was like, All right, so they got to actually, the word actually came in, dwelled, hung out, maybe slept over. When was the last time God's word dwelled in you? I was thinking about this for me personally, because I don't know, 
In pastoral ministry, it's easy to be in this position where you're teaching about the word and not impacted by the word. It's like you're talking about it all the time and there's this danger of like standing up here and preaching and like not actually being transformed. So I was, you know, trying to be in the scriptures and I would sometimes when I'm walking my dog, I'll listen to like the Bible on tape. And sometimes it sort of goes in one year and out the other. And if you've ever uh, read the scriptures or listened to an audio version, you get what I'm saying. You're like, wait, where am I? Chapter three, how'd I get there? But this morning, I... One thing that happened in the book of Hosea was a particular line in the book of Hosea. And I literally just stopped in my tracks. It's Hosea 2.16. And it says this, God says this, In that day, I will no longer call you master. Or you will no longer call me master. You will call me husband. And it was this moment of like, how easy it is for me to get in this place where I'm trying to obey God without being in love with God. Right? Husband has this sense of marriage, connection, intimacy. How easy is it in life and in faith to just sort of be a roommate with God without actually having this deep sense of connection? And I felt this sort of stirring and this longing in me, and it sort of haunted me ever since of like, all right, God, what does it look like for me to actually be close to you? Not simply say, Master, you know, I'll do whatever you want. Are you dwelling in the word? In verse 40, Jesus says this. He says, yet you refuse to come me and have life. And I guess my question for you is, are you going to him for life today? In Genesis 3, what we see is after the fall, after an Adam and Eve do what they want to do versus listening to the voice of God, what's the first thing they do? God calls them in the garden. What do they do? They hide. In their moment of greatest need, what do they do? They try and take care of themselves, hiding behind a tree versus going to God, who is the source of their life. I think it's easy for us in the midst of modern life to kind of get in that place where it's like, who are you actually going to for life? Verse 42, he says this, I, do not, I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And I guess my last question is, this morning, do you, do you love him? Do you love God? Not do you come to church, not do you go to a Bible study, not do you sing the songs, but like below it all, is there a love in you for Jesus, for the Father? Right, Hosea too, right? It's like, man, not just my master, but my husband. What would it look like for you to love God? I mean, can you think of a season when you did love God? Was there a time where you look back and you're like, oh man, that's what I felt like when I was in love with God. That's what I did. That's what life looked like. And my question today to you is, is it like that anymore? Why not? What changed? Do you love God? And the third sort of major way I think this translates is sort of what gets in the way, right? Who is Jesus? What is your relationship like? And, you know, what gets in the way? 
Right? In the first century, what we see in this dialogue is that Jesus is having all kinds of conflict because he breaks a Sabbath rule. And then he kind of violates expectations of who they think the Messiah is going to be. And because of that, right, they don't accept his testimony. What about for you? What gets in the way? This last week, I, or this last year, I've had these weeds in my front yard. And they've been particularly pernicious. I, I've like done like the covered ground cover thing. I put cardboard. I've put all, but it's incredible. These weeds literally will like go horizontal for like five feet and then pop up. Like incredible. I even paid people to come and help me uproot them. It was my kids. So it was really like a scent of weed. So it was pretty cheap labor, but I even paid people to take them out. I spent probably six months trying to get these weeds out of my front yard. And yesterday, Josiah and I, my son, were playing uh, baseball in the front yard. I was pitching to him, and I looked over, and I saw this beautiful flower in my front yard. And I went over to it, and I realized in about two seconds that what I thought was weeds covering my entire front yard were actually beautiful flowers. For an entire year, I was pulling up flowers in my front yard, thinking that I was dealing with weeds. And when I think about this story in chapter 5, what really hits home to me is that God is coming in the person of Jesus to bring beauty and life and good to the world, and that they see it as weeds. They see him as a weed popping up in the midst of a beautifully theologically sort of cater, uh, gardened, uh, beautiful garden. They're saying, oh, we got to pull him up. We have to get rid of him. But what we see through the incarnation is that God is wanting to do good things in the world. He is wanting to bring beauty. He is wanting to bring goodness. He is wanting to rescue us. And yet, I think I wonder for you today, what gets in the way? What is the beauty and life that God is wanting to bring in your life now that actually you're pulling up and weeding? Whether it's through busyness, through distraction, maybe because you're afraid of what people would think if you actually followed what Jesus was saying. What is the beauty in your life that God is trying to do that through the way you are structuring your life and relating to God is actually uprooting the very good thing God is wanting to do? As we enter into worship, I think my hope, I just want to invite the worship team up, is that we would lean into as we sing these songs, we would lean into who Jesus is. We would really be kind of vigorous about what is our relationship with him like and how do we grow in it? Not simply settle for what has been. And lastly, just be attentive to what might be getting in the way. What is the beautiful thing that God is wanting to grow in your life that you are confusing for a weed? As we enter worship, let me just pray for us. God, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. God, that we, without question, without hesitation, by the end of this day, would be able to say, God, we know who you are because you have revealed yourself to us through your spirit in this place. You are a good father. You want beauty 
to spring forth in our lives. God, today we just declare how beautiful you are, how good you are. And God, we ask that you would reveal yourselves to us. God, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Reveal yourself that we may know you more.